up on the Six Days podcast. We are delving back into Salem for Act 3 of The Crucible. We're going to be answering some of the questions, looking at the key quotations, and of course, making those links and connections to Year of Wonders. That's coming up on the Six Days podcast right now. Well, welcome back to the Six Bs Podcast. It is great to have your company once again. This is episode N, and we're looking at Act 3 of The Crucible. If you'd like to get in contact, please do so. Happy to hear any feedback or answer any questions you might have. That email address is 6pspodcast at gmail.com. That's 6pspodcast at gmail.com. But let's get into the crucible. And Act 1, as we know, was at the, in the Paris household. Act 2 was the Proctor household. And this time we're at the Salem Meeting House. In fact, we're in the vestry room of the Salem Meeting House, which in the stage directions, we are told, is now serving as the anteroom of the general court. So the court is being held next door at the Salem Meeting House. And this is, as I guess, um, the green room, so to speak. Um, with the questions... I'm going to go through them first, and then any quotes I've missed out on, I'll go through those a bit later on. But let's start with the questions. And the first one asks you why Miller places the characters off stage to begin with. Um, look, number of possible reasons why this could be. The first being I really like the idea of Giles Corey being dragged into the room away from the court. Um, for me, once again, Giles Corey is this really heroic character who... Um, learns a lesson early on after um, accidentally saying that his wife had been reading books and he, that was putting on him off his prayers. Um, later on, of course, in this act, we see him um, provide a petition with names of people who um, are swear to the fact that Thomas Putnam um, is basically killing off George Jacobs, but he refuses to give names and that sort of counts against him. And as we know in Act 4, he ends up dying Um quite um, a noble death. He gets crushed. Rather than being hanged, he gets crushed by weight. And we might get onto that in Act 4. But I really do like this idea of Giles being off stage and then getting dragged into the room. In fact, um, there's actually a stage direction for this um, as well, and it comes up on page number 78. And when it says the door opens and Giles is half carried into the vestry room by Herrick. So that idea that you know Giles being dragged in um, sort of making a stand, you know, they had, they had to sort of force him out of the court. The other reason, of course, is the fact that we don't see it and we get this continual um, motif of the fear of the unknown, fear of the unseen, um, and that's actually going to come up a little bit later on too, this idea of what you can see and what you can't see, especially when it comes to witchcraft. On to question two now, and this revolves around 
Judge Danforth and asks you to find quotations that highlight his characteristics. So I guess I'll first go, um, as I turn the page now, you can probably hear that. Uh, I'll go to his introduction, which comes up on page 78. And it says, Danforth is a grave man in his 60s of some humor and sophistication that does not, however, interfere with an exact loyalty to his position and his cause. And I think that last section is a really, really good quote to remember. The fact that nothing interferes with an exact loyalty to his position and his cause. He's extremely stubborn in the way that he um, acts throughout this scene and the next scene as well. He has so much authority in both these scenes, yet he's so blinded by his faith. He's got such um, strict, uh, strict, I guess, um, interpretation of religion that even when I think he knows he's doing the wrong thing, um, he still does so. So that's a great quote to remember for, for Danforth. And, and we learn as this sort of goes along the fact that he doesn't really understand the town too well. And slowly but surely he starts to learn more and more about the characters and more about the individuals. But he still doesn't really make the right decisions in the end. And of course, he holds his authority or sort of tells everyone his authority later on when he suggests how many people he sent um, to the gallows. Question three is a great one. It asks you to compare what Danforth says here, which is on page 81, and compare it to Miller's commentary on page 14. So the quote on page 81 um, comes up towards the top when Danforth says to John Proctor, Mr. Proctor, do you know that the entire contention of the state in these trials is that the voice of heaven is speaking through the children? Now, the significance to page 14 is the fact that on page 14, in Miller's um, exposition in his commentary, he says that Salem never conceived that the children were anything but thankful for being permitted to walk straight, eyes slightly lowered, arms at their sides, and mouths shut until bidden to speak. It's irony. The fact that Salem refused to let children speak, it went against sort of the creed, it went against the idea of Puritanism, yet here, um, it's the idea that they speak the truth, the voice of heaven goes through them. And as you know, irony is rife throughout this play, and of course it is, it's an allegory. Miller's trying to suggest that what happened at Salem Witch Trials is happening in 1950s America as well, and of course he was put on trial himself. So you can imagine um, these scenes in the courtroom, very much um, Miller is thinking about those experiences that he had. Question number four, find quotations which relate to the setting and the current state of Salem. Uh, I sort of went to page 83 here, and there's a couple of quotes which I think are really good. The first one just says on, as you said, page 83, from Proctor. Proctor asks, does it not strike upon you that so many of these women have lived so long with such upright reputation? The idea that people who are being blamed being accused of witchcraft are actually really, really good people. The idea that, you know, this town is now succumbed to hysteria and scapegoating and blaming. The other quote from Proctor later on, he says, But who tells us Rebecca Nurse murdered seven babies by sending out her spirit on them? It is the children only, and this one will swear she lied to you. And that's when he sort of talks about Mary Warren there. So this idea that, yeah, Salem now is... Well, the court, especially in religion, especially is being abused by individuals to gain from it or by individuals to protect themselves. And we know that because 
Abigail was one of the first to be blamed for the hysteria and all of a sudden she's got all the power. And we know from Act 2 with that great um, simile where the crowds part like the seas of Israel. Question 5. What quotation describes Danforth's view of society and the black and white thinking present in Puritan society? Already I know you're thinking of that quote from Year of Wonders on page 55 from memory about dark and light, dark and light, dark and light, when Anna talks about how the Puritans or what the Puritans had taught her about the world, that things were either good or evil or godly or satanic, um, good or evil. So the quote from Danforth on page 85 is a really good one, and again, one that I definitely recommend that you remember. And Danforth says, that a person is either with this court or he must be counted against it. There'd be no road in between. That is exactly the definition of black and white thinking. Someone is either good or evil. There's no road in between. And Danforth toes this line throughout the whole play. He refuses to change his mind, even when provided with some really important evidence. He's really, his thinking anyway, is really rigid. And that plays a really important role, as I said, throughout the play. Moving on to question number six, and it asks us on page 87, why does Giles Corey not provide the names of those who are testifying for Rebecca Nurse and Martha Corey? And I sort of mentioned that previously with one of the other questions, but there's that quote that Giles says, I will not give you no name. I mentioned my wife's name once, and I'll burn in hell long enough for that. I stand mute. And he stands mute until his death, of course. But again, it's that guilt that he feels. Um, I guess this idea of guilt comes up a little bit in both texts as well. I mean, in this text in, in The Crucible, we know that Hale feels guilt. There's blood on his hands. He says that in Act 4. Um, and I guess John Proctor as well, the guilt that he feels for the sins that he's committed um, towards his wife. Question seven, how does Danforth describe witchcraft? Why is this ironic? And this comes down to, well, this is on page 90, and he, it's quite a long quote. But he says, In an ordinary crime, how does one defend the accused? One calls up witnesses to prove his innocence. But witchcraft is, ipso facto, on its face and by its very nature, an invisible crime, is it not? Therefore, who may possibly be witness to it? The witch and the victim. None other. Now, we cannot hope the witch will accuse herself, granted. Therefore, we must rely upon her victims, and they do testify. The children certainly do testify. And as for the witches, none will deny that we are most eager for all their confessions. Therefore, what is left for a lawyer to bring out? I think I've made my point. Have I not? And this idea that, you know, witchcraft is an invisible crime, and on page 83, it's really ironic, and he uses repetition when he talks to John Proctor. And he says, I tell you straight, mister, I have seen marvels in this court. I have seen people choked before my eyes by spirits. I have seen them stuck by pins and slashed by daggers. The idea that he talks about witchcraft being an invisible crime, yet he suggests that he has actually seen it um, with his very own eyes. Again, irony consistently comes up throughout this play. Question eight. What quotation describes the difficult position that many find themselves in? And this is on page 91. 
And this is Danforth to Mary Warren. This is him really using his authority over her. He says to her, I will tell you this. You are either lying now or you are lying in the court. And in either case, you have committed perjury and you will go to jail for it. The idea that characters find themselves in this really difficult situation where they're sort of, they can't win. We saw this with Tichuba. Tichuba was in a no-win situation back in Act 1. She was told, you know, that she was going to be whipped to death unless she confessed. So here we have the same idea with Mary Warren. She was either lying on the court when she pretended to faint or she was lying there and then. Another way, she was damned. And again, we see Mary Warren manage to weasel her way out of it. The last question, question nine, asks you to fill out the evidence, what evidence is ignored and what is considered. And I think um, rather than going through everything specifically, it's the girls who are believed. Um, what they say, how they act, it's all believed. What's ignored is the adults, John Proctor and Elizabeth Proctor. Um, that really awful, awful scene where well, it's you have John Proctor saying beforehand, you know, my wife will never lie. And then she lies for him, and that's what ends up convicting him, is her lie in order to sort of protect him. Hale comes out and says that it's natural for that to happen, but Danforth dismisses that. And in fact, Danforth dismisses a lot of other things. He dismisses the petition by Giles Corey, which had 74 names. He dismisses a lot of what we would consider hard evidence. So just looking at some quotations that we might have missed in these questions, and the first one I wanted to look at, comes from John Proctor and it comes up when um, he talks about Abigail and he confesses to Danforth the fact that he has known Abigail and this is of course on page number uh, 98 and he says a man may think God sleeps but God sees everything I know it now I beg you sir I beg you See her what she is. She thinks to dance with me on my wife's grave, and well she might, for I thought of her softly. God help me, I lusted, and there is a promise in such sweat, but it's a whore's vengeance. And you must see it. I set myself entirely in your hands. The reason why I like this quote, he says to Danforth, is the fact that he says, you know, a man may think God sleeps, but God sees everything. And this John, he strives for his morality, striving for his goodness throughout this whole play. And that's what's really, really important to him. And that's why he confesses this. Um, he confesses the fact that, yeah, he thought of her softly, that him and Abigail um, did have a, a relationship. And that's what it's sort of, that confession is, is him bearing his soul, really, for everyone to know. The other quote I like from Proctor in the play comes up. It's the very last page of the play, of the act, sorry, I should say, on page 105. And he says, A fire of fire is burning. I hear the boot of Lucifer. I see his filthy face, and it is my face and yours, Danforth. For them that quail to bring men out of ignorance as I have quailed, and as you quail now when you know in all your black hearts that this be fraud. God damns our kind especially, and we will burn we will burn together. It's that really, that threatening tone towards Danforth. And he even says to Danforth, you know, you know in all your black hearts that this be fraud. He says to him, you know this is wrong. You know the girls are lying, but you're not doing any, anything about it. And it links in really nicely to what he said on page 74, which is one of my favorite quotes from the play, where he says, 
You know, we are what we always were in Salem, but now the little crazy children are jangling the keys of the kingdom and common vengeance rights the law. And that, of course, was when he was talking about the warrant. And he says, this warrants vengeance and I'll not give my wife to vengeance. That's where I think I'll leave it for Act 3. We'll be back very shortly to look at Act 4. But as I said, if you have any questions, please do send me an email on the 6pspodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back next time looking at Act 4. And after that, we'll get back into a bit of music. We might even have some special guests come and join us when we start comparing things like themes and language and style and structure and context. So look forward to your company very soon on the 6Ps podcast looking at Act 4. Until then, remember that proper prior preparation prevents poor performance. Are we finished? Done.